To have passion in life is everything. What's your Everest? Oh, is it yeah. that 200 inch box? They just look so impressive when they're wide. Especially running away. <laughs> Welcome to this week's episode of Eastman's Elevated. It's like a think tank for outdoor activity. Sounds exactly like my hunting. Just always thinking about it, always trying to evolve it and make it better. Here's your host, Brian Barney. Hey, what's happening, guys? Uh, I got a brand new podcast for you. So this week I have back on Kip Fowler. Uh, I really like Kip, and I, I really enjoy our conversations. Um, the guy's just a diehard high country mule deer hunter, but he'll hunt anything with his bow. You know, he hunts uh, uh, bears and elk and, and antelope, and he's a just a real knowledgeable hunter. He's real introspective. Um, he I love his approach to, to life and balance and, and also to hunting. And um, I love being able to compare and contrast different styles um, with other successful hunters. And, and Kip's just that. Um, we get into it an hour and 20 minutes flies by as we get talking different theories on hunting, learning from our mistakes, uh, and just improving and being a better bow hunter and more successful. But really fun conversation. I enjoyed it, and I know you guys will too. Sponsor for today's show is Technu. Uh, Technu is just a great company with great products. So they have their Technu Original, and their Technu Original is meant for poison oak and poison ivy. Uh, it really removes the the oil, and the oil can get on your clothing or on your, your boots or your, your truck steering wheel, and it can stay there for months, and then you can rub up against it and have a breakout of poison oak, poison ivy. So it's great at removing the oils. It also has some other uses. Um, it's really good at removing removing sap off clothing uh, it'll remove that the oil off that and also the skunk smell if your dog gets into a, a skunk um, you probably know that tomato juice a bath in that just doesn't work well technu will actually remove the oil remove the odor from your dog if it gets into a skunk or um, like when we had ike eastman on the the uh, uh, a call with Technu there with Steve Smith that we did a, a call and and uh, Ike told a story about driving his wife's car through a mud puddle where a skunk had died and it sprayed it all over the car and he couldn't get the smell out and uh, he eventually ended up giving his his car a wash in Technu uh, to get the smell out but anyways a ton of different uses it's a great product thanks to Technu for sponsoring the podcast and um. Yeah, with that, uh, gosh, we're just keeping busy at Eastman's. Uh, it's been a heck of a year for Eastman's. I just keep seeing photos come through with successful hunts. I saw Guy and Ike both uh, crushed good mule deer in, in um, I believe it was Wyoming, could be Colorado. Uh, Brandon, we had him on the podcast last week, and uh, he harvested that really nice bull, a nice antelope, and then his son had the deer tag, and um, I, I saw a photo come through that is that his son made good on his um, special deer tag on his first mule deer buck. So that was really cool to see. Uh, Scott Reekers has had some success. He's out elk hunting now. Dan Picard's had some success. Um, it, it, it's just been a great year. I've had a great season. Boy, have I had fun on on all these adventures and some more hunting to come yet. Uh, I got the uh, the mule deer rut here, a couple tags in my pocket, and then also hunting with families. The The highlight of my season so far was hunting with my youngest daughter. Um, she was able to harvest her first deer. Just an amazing experience. And then to have the whole adventure and we bone out the deer and we're both packing it out. And we get in the swamp and we're knee deep water and just in the middle of the night and just stuff that 
you know, you you wouldn't experience any other way unless you were hunting. But it just brings adventure. I know it's going to be a great memory for her, and um, it it's it's one of my favorite memories. It's just really fun to to share more of my world with with the kids, and you just forget all the little things too. It just almost comes second nature to us. Um, you know, that the deer come out and they, they feed during the, the night or if they come out in the evening, feed all night, come back in the morning and in the thick brush. But being able to explain all this to her and the tracks and which way they're going and sign and, um, you know, sneaking through the woods quietly and just just being able to spend that quality of time. It, it's amazing the conversations that you that you have with them. And, and I just. I, I love doing fun, adventurous things um, with family and friends, and, and I really love sharing that with my kids and just want to do it as much as possible. So that was really cool. I got another hunt coming up with my oldest daughter. We're going to do another adventure hunt and, and uh, go for the weekend and see if we can't catch up to a good mule deer buck for her. So um, really looking forward to that and a little bit more hunting for myself. But let's get this thing rolling. This is a great conversation. Um, so it's Kip Fowler, Eastman's Elevated. Here we go. Hello. Hey, Kip. How's it going? Hey, it's going good. Good. Um, boy, you've had a busy season. Congratulations. It's been fun to follow <laughs> along with you. Oh, thanks. You know, it has been busy. It's been way fun, though. It was uh, The Utah bow hunt was busy, busy, because, man, I were bouncing all over uh, during the whole hunt, and then it wasn't shortly thereafter that we were up in Wyoming. So it's calmed down a little bit here in the last two weeks for me, but uh, there was about a three-week stretch there where it was bouncing and jumping and never knew what was going to happen. Oh, how cool. Yeah, so you you started it off with um, Utah mule deer, right? Yep. Yep, and yeah, killed Utah a heck of a... I was going to say, UC starts that third week of August for us out here. So it's been a month and a half ago, but yeah, that started the third week of August. And um, I don't know, as, as you probably know, I missed a good buck. I missed the buck end up killing. I missed him opening weekend. And then Matt and I were trying to relocate him again, but also still hunting. And uh, it took us about a week and a half, almost two weeks to find the buck I was after again. But we did a lot of hunting in between. So it was, like I said, it was... It was green light go from day one, and it never stopped. And even after I harvested mine, we were still trying to get mad a buck, and we still are. Um, but yeah, it was green light go from day one, and it didn't slow down for very long. Man, how fun. You know, hunting season, it seems like it just all comes at once. You know, all in that fall season where you got to really condense it in and then try to also be taking care of your work responsibilities and the house and the yeah. family. And um, I know your kids are in sports as well, and so trying to make sporting events. And um, it, it seems like that's the nature of the beast come fall, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, and it's this proverbial – it's kind of this catch-22 you get in where – you scout all summer and you're planning your hunts for the fall, but you also know that your kids have sporting stuff and you got work and family. And so it's, it's this kind of catch 22 you get yourself into where, you know, the fall is going to be busy and you get out in the field with the tag in your pocket and you don't want the hunt to end too early. Uh, at least this is the way I've gone where I, I don't want the hunt to end too early, but at the same time, you know, the clock's kind of ticking. And if you don't, if you're not able to fill your tag by a certain date, then it's just going to get harder and harder as the grind goes on. So I was, I look back on it and to harvest my deer within the first two weeks, it was actually good. Um, I was kind of able to focus and try to help Matt, but then we did shortly thereafter jump up to Wyoming and we were up there for eight days. So by the time I got home from that Wyoming hunt, that elk hunt, 
you know, I usually get home and have to tuck back down and settle in for a little while and let things at home calm down a little bit and give my wife a break. Kip, you there? I'm there now. Can you hear me? Yeah, sorry. Cut out there for a minute. So you said um, come home and give your wife a break, but you came back from that Wyoming hunt. And what happened? Oh, just that. Just that. I think that's probably where it cut out, where, you know, I got back from Wyoming, and we'd been gone for over a week. So that's usually when uh, I get home and just kind of tuck in and try to get back to life around the house and at work. And my wife, usually at that point, as you know, they need a break and try to pamper her a little bit because I've been out having my fun. Oh, isn't that the truth? It's such a it's such a balance, isn't it? And and I think too, you can spend too much time in the field to where then you're neglecting your your family and responsibilities and work and everything kind of starts falling apart. So it is a balance between trying to go hard and hunt hard and really enjoy your time, but then also get back and taking care of your responsibilities. So I'm also in that mix now as our elk season just came to an end and I've been going crazy since August as well. And so I've kind of got to get back into the groove here and make sure I'm taking care of responsibilities and, and uh, picking up the slack wherever I can. But uh, it, it is sure a balance in the fall. Oh, yeah, and we were up, when we were up hunting elk, uh, my friend Matt Bateman that I hunt with, you know, we had a forest fire down here in Utah that was threatening his house. And um, they had a huge fire out here. It ended up being the second largest uh, wildfire in the history of the state of Utah. And so Matt and I are out hunting, and we have little pockets where we could get cell phone coverage. And he was almost scared to check because he's got his wife at home telling him where the fire is. And he actually got footage sent to him from his wife of a bulldozer coming through his backyard trying to make a fire line. So in the end, we you know, we would have been home either way. But it, things like that, when they go on, especially during a hunt, it, it's tough to keep your head in the game and try to hunt when you have to get home. So we ended up killing Matt's bull. The last day we really had to hunt because he had to get back. Things were getting pretty dicey at his house. And so we ended up killing his bull um, the final day, and then we just loaded up and got home as fast as we could. And things turned out to be okay at his house with this forest fire, but, man, it was close. And, you know, those are the things you don't want to have happen when you're out on a hunt you've been planning on for a year. So, yeah, that balancing act was coming into play big time on that hunt. I'd say, yeah, that's uh, while we had a fire maybe like four or five miles away from my house, and that had me worried as well. Our wives just do such a great job at supporting our passions, don't they? And just they just take care of the household when we take off and just handle things. I mean, I, I just, um, like you, I just can't thank my wife enough for that all that she does so I can go out and enjoy my passion and chase these critters around. And then, you know, I just try to be like the, the best husband and father I can be when I'm home or when I'm catching up the rest of the year, even during hunting season. But, you know, I, it just makes me work that much harder to, to try to be uh, you know, as supportive as I can and to try to help out with everything around the house, take care of responsibility just because of that, th- to have them on your side and working with you instead of against you. It just means the absolute world to me. Yeah, same here. And, it, and it's funny now, my wife in the off season, she, she's so far ahead of it now. And she realizes now that if I'm, if I'm being almost too good at home, she knows something's coming. So, <laughs> so if I'm, if I'm going out of my way to finish projects and she she can read it like okay what are you uh what are you building up to what hunt have you got lined up that you're trying to build points for so we kind of have this funny back and forth but it's been really fun because my wife as my kids have gotten older she's enjoyed traveling with my kids and taking our our children on trips and so you know we have an age group of our kids our oldest is 20 and our youngest is four so we have kind of 
age groups spread out over a, a large um, time frame with our kids. And so my wife now enjoys taking our older kids on trips and I stay home with our little ones. And so it's kind of been fun where I've been able to plan and go on hunting trips. And then my wife is also kind of saying, Hey, if you're going to go hunt elk in Wyoming for a week, I want to take Brielle and Avery down. We're going to go on this trip. And so while we obviously try to do stuff together there, it's been fun for her to take kids on trips. And and if that's how I justify me going on some hunting trips, so be it, but it's worked out. we got our system. And I think that's the, that's probably the point of all this is everybody, whether you're in a relationship or a marriage, there's kind of a system you got to work out and figure out to where if you have a passion for hunting and you'd like to be outdoors and doing that, um, there's this balancing act and there's a system that you'll eventually find that works for you. And it's taken us some time to figure that kind of that system out, but we have a really good, obviously wonderful relationship. And my wife knows my passion for hunting and, and I know that she has a passion for things that she is, is interested in. And so there's this balancing act and, and I'm hoping we're, we figured it out, but we're still kind of figuring it out as we go. Yeah, that, um, that hits home for me too, Kit. We're always, you know, we've got a pretty good system in place. And like you say, she'll do girls trips or go with the daughters and, and, uh, and then she takes care of things while I'm gone and while I'm hunting, but, but it's always still fine tuning that, you know, this year we had quite a few buddies stay at the house. I mean, it was pretty much like we were running a hunting camp every, every week, you know, if I wasn't gone, we had somebody staying here at the house and hunting with them. And then, you know, we're kind of disrupting sleep patterns and, and up late when we get home and up early in the morning. And so, you know, now we're having to negotiate some new waters and try to figure this out, you know, to where it, where it works for everybody, but she's just great. And man, the hunting season has been so much fun and just due to her, you know, uh, taking so much responsibility and picking up the slack and making sure the girls are taken care of and household is taken care of. And like you say, I, I just can't appreciate it enough. So yeah, I'm on my yeah. absolute best behavior right now. <laughs> yeah. But, um, so that, so that mule deer hunt early in, um, Utah and man, I, I really like Matt Bateman too. I've got to get him on the podcast. He's such a great guy and you guys make such a great team as you really look out for, for your hunting partner and want him to do well as, as much or more than you want to succeed yourself. And so I, I always love talking to you and love talking to Matt as you guys always mention each other and you always mention working hard to try to get Matt as bull or Matt as buck, which you're still trying to do. But that, that buck that you found early, man, that was a heck of a buck. So, um, I forgot all about it, but maybe you had mentioned it. So you had a miss on that buck the opening week, huh? Yeah, you know, I did. That was a buck I found pretty early in the summer. And what we do out here, and as you know, as we've talked earlier, but we'll, we bounce to a lot of different areas uh, scouting. And if we find a buck we like, you know, we'll peg it and then we're bouncing to another area, just trying to get eyes on as many different spots as we can. Um, so that I found this buck early and then we were bouncing around, checking different spots. And we found deer that were a little bit bigger, but this buck, every time I went back in, he was the most consistent. Um, he was the most consistent deer, stayed in kind of the same general area. And as the hunt progress, as the time to the hunt progressed and got closer, I felt like he was the buck I had the best chance at killing. There were deer I found that uh, maybe were a little better. We never found anything out here, Brian, that was just crazy big. That was, you know, a 200-inch-plus buck. But we did find some of those 180-class deer. Um, but this was the buck I felt like I had the best chance of killing. And so what I did this summer that was a little bit different to some extent than what I've done in the past is, you know, I, I try early in the summer and as the summer progresses to, to, um, 
figure out the drainages and the deer we want to hunt. And then we try to haul gear and, and stuff in early before the hunt. So when the hunt rolls around and you want to go hunt for three or four or five days at a time, you know, it's so hard to have to pack in all your water, all your food, all your gear. It'll kill you. I was talking to a kid just a couple of weeks ago that's kind of newer into bow hunting and wanting to hunt the high country stuff. And he he got a hold of me via Instagram and said, look, the trouble we're having is we're we're going into some really rough, you know, terrain really deep. And by the time we get there, we're wore out. And we, we've expended so much of our energy just getting there that we're, we're almost too exhausted to hunt for more than a day. So that's what I talked to him about is our strategy, my, my strategy of finding an area that I want to hunt or two or three. We try to find, Matt and I generally try to find three or four areas that we want to hunt. And then we go in early and we stash water, we stash gear. Like this year, I had four camps stashed. I had each camp had enough food and water to last for about five days, and then they each had a tent, a sleeping bag, a pad, and a pillow. And so that way, if I ever wanted to bounce and hunt, all I had to do was really take the gear I wanted to hunt with, and I had enough supplies and gear for four or five days. Um, so that's what we did. But this buck was a buck, the buck that I killed. We, I called him Seven Mag simply because on his on his back right side he had some extra points and i thought he'd have seven points on that side so i called him seven mag but opening weekend the opening morning the opening day matt got eyes on seven mag and he said you know he told me so matt and i camped probably we camp about a mile and a half apart but it puts us in position to kind of glass for one another and matt told me on the opening morning that he hadn't seen seven mag um, I actually got eyes on another buck that was actually better than seven mag, a buck I hadn't seen all summer, and got mad in tight on that buck opening afternoon, Saturday afternoon, and it, came, it it was so close to happening. That was one of those situations for Matt where it was so unbelievably close for him to harvest this animal, really a big deer, and it just didn't happen. But then that afternoon, Matt got me and said, hey, I found seven mag. And so what happened, Brian, is I Matt had glassed him from about a mile away, and I ended up putting a stock on him. And I got into about, you know, I, I moved up through a pocket of real thick pines, and he was on the upper end of this pine patch, just had just come out feeding. Uh, Matt spotted him about an hour and a half before dark. And so I had enough time to move from where I was, and I have hunted this area before, so I knew how to slip through this pine patch. And it was one of those, I dumped my pack, dumped everything uh, put on my, I wear these stockasins now, which I love, these moccasins uh, specifically made for bow hunting. Put my stockasins on and just slipped up through these pines, through this bedding area, but I knew where this buck was. I knew where Seven Mag was, and I ended up coming out of the pines, and there he was feeding, and I had him at, Brian, I had him at 45 yards. That's why I say I should have killed him. But I had some aspens between myself and, and Seven Mag, and I couldn't get a good range on his yardage. And I was just, you get, you get that close to an animal, and he, and he didn't know I was there, but I was getting so nervous about the wind. The wind is swirling in these high elevation situations, and I thought at any minute the wind was going to bust me. So I had Seven Mag at 45 yards, but I couldn't get a good range on him. And so I ended up guessing at 35, and the reason I shot was he was moving to my left, and I was worried about the wind, and he stepped, and I had an opening into his vitals, and he was he was going to clear that opening in pretty short time. So I pulled back, I guessed him at 35, and shot, and just shot under him. Um, and, you know, those situ I, I was just sick, because those situations are so hard to come by. Um, and I should have killed him. I felt like it was a shot that I, I, I felt good about the shot, I felt like I went through my mental checklist, everything I felt good about, other than I just shot the wrong yardage and shot right underneath him. So blew him out of the area. Um, 
And it's funny when he took off. The funny thing is, Brian, when I got that close to him, he was a better deer than I thought. He carries his mass way high. He's, he's more massive than I gave him credit for. So when I was closing the gap and getting in tight on him, he, you know, usually you get in tight like that and you may think he's not quite what you thought he was. He was better than I thought. And so when I missed, it just made me sick. Um, but yeah, that's what happened opening weekend. And then it took us almost two weeks to relocate him. Um, and that was a process in and of itself, but we eventually relocated him and I ended up kind of the same scenario again, where, um, you know, and maybe we can jump back to that, but that's what happened that, that opening weekend when I missed seven mag is, uh, really should have killed him. And I guess at that point, Brian, you can get discouraged and get down and, and just think about how hard you worked for that one opportunity and it'll never happen again for you. But we just kept pounding it. It's just too much fun not to keep pounding it. So Matt and I did, and eventually we relocated him, and and things went down two weeks later. Oh, man. It is just such a letdown when you have one of those close encounters you've worked so hard for, and you get in range, and you you do. You feel like it's almost impossible to recreate that. Like, that was your opportunity. It's over. But you did the right thing. Like, all you can do is you can sit and worry about it every way from Sunday or you just keep hunting. You get back to hunting and you stop thinking about it and go, well, next time I'm going to get a good range or that's how that scenario went down. But, but you know, next time I'm going to play it different or, you know, uh, uh, and sometimes there's nothing you can do. Like he was going to wind you and you had your one window opportunity. You guessed at it and guessed wrong. But um, it is the absolute. Yeah, and it's funny because that, that did come into play, Brian, too. When we found this buck again, um, that situation unfolded because so Matt had stayed up on the mountain and had hunted for an evening, and then I came in, he'd hunted for an evening and a morning on his own, and then I hiked into, again, a neighboring area where we could glass for one another, because Matt uh, texted me the next day, and he said, hey, if you can get up here, I've got these three bucks bedded. So Matt had located them, these three different bucks, he'd located them in the morning, and tried to make a play on them and just couldn't. He put them to bed in this group of pines, and then he texted me and said, hey, if you can get up here, um, you know, we can kind of both set up and I think it would be a good situation for one of us to kill. So I got the green light from my wife to go up on the mountain for, I, I kind of just thought for the evening or maybe for an evening and a morning hunt. And I went up on the mountain and I knew where Matt was positioned and I never did see these deer that he was hunting. But eventually as the evening progressed, Matt's situation went south. And so, but again, he said, Hey, I've located seven mag. This is where he's at. Um, what do you want to do? And I had said, well, I'm, if your situation's gone south, I'm going to go try to make a play on 7 Mag. And the situation ended up being so similar to what it was opening weekend with 7 Mag, where I, I got within about 500 yards. I dumped my pack, put on my stockasins, ended up slipping up through these thick pines and nasty rocks. And, and I took my time because the wind actually was bad, Brian. It was a bad wind. But Seven Mag was in an area that I thought if I can clear the wind eventually and get on the back side of him, I can I can hunt him. So I slipped through these thick pines, went up through these rocks, and just took my time. It took me probably an hour and a half. But when I finally cleared the pines, and I was actually looking below me. I was looking down below me to see if I could find him in this thick pine bedding area below me. And I just started to clear, and I looked up above me, and he was out in the open feeding. So this was kind of late afternoon. But he had stood up early and was feeding. But this very similar scenario to that opening weekend happened where I had a little bit of cover between me and him that I couldn't clear without him seeing me. So I kind of had to kind of shoot through it. 
But what I learned from that first scenario, which we all know, but I, I realized I don't want to miss this buck again because I shot the wrong yardage. So it took me some time. I had some small little quakies between the buck and I. It took me time to get a good read on him, but I felt like I eventually got the right read on his yardage. Um, so that was kind of to your point, learning what I had gone through two weeks earlier. I, I, I remember telling myself, I'm not going to miss this buck because I got the, I shot the wrong yardage. So I waited till I could get a good read. Then I had to pull back and kind of find my little window through the quakies and end up putting a good shot on him. But it was again, learning from that previous situation. And it's so funny because your mind's just going crazy in these situations. You're all jacked up and you're excited and I can't remember many situations where I'm just dead calm, but I knew again, this is going to happen. And what that came into my mindset was if nothing else, make sure you get your yardage, right. But, but so that's what happened in that scenario. But again, it was me and Matt, you know, I went up basically to help Matt. I went up to try to help him in his situation. And so it didn't surprise me after it was all said and done that, you know, I go up to help Matt and I'm the one that ends up harvesting that night. And it's happened so many times where, you go into a situation really trying to play for your buddy and lo and behold, things end up playing in your favor. And, uh, you know, those are, ex- those are pleasant surprises. And, and, you know, nobody was more excited for, for me than Matt was in this situation. Cause he knew seven mag was the buck I'd kind of targeted, but and, you know, in, in that situation or any other, like if we'd have gone up and, and Matt would have been in the best position to kill seven mag, he would have been the one to kill it, and I'd have been happy for him. So, um, but yeah, that's what happened. That's eventually how I ended up taking that buck seven mag. And it was, the situation that on the mountain we thought things were going to go Matt's way, and lo and behold, they went my way, and, and hey, I'll take it. Yeah, well, good karma follows you around trying to help your buddy, and then it ends up <laughs> yeah. good for you. But, um, yeah, isn't that like um, you, you you talk about not having a clear head, and that's the way it is. You work so hard for those opportunities. It seems like you're in a fog of adrenaline once you get your opportunity or you're in close. Like you can't think of ten different variables. You're thinking about one or two things, and you, you said earlier – you went through your checklist when you executed your shot when he was at 45 and not 35, executed a good shot. You just like uh, got lost in the details there and not getting a good range. So when you got your second opportunity, it was like, there's no way I'm missing this thing because I got a bad range. I'm going to make sure I get a good range. And, and I think that's how I think of like ranging. It seems like every couple of years I'll take a shot at a guest yardage or things happen quick or I have a good yardage and he bounds off and now he's 10 yards and I try to guess at it. And, and after I'll miss one of those, I'll go, never again. I'm going to make sure I have a good range or I'm not going to shoot because I just don't shoot that good when I'm guessing yardage. I, yeah. I always seem to mess it up or seem to miss. I'm just not that good at judging yardage. So for me, my range finder game, that, that's a that's a huge piece to my puzzle of killing animals consistently is just getting that good range which is easier said than done like i say when you're in that fog of adrenaline you you can't think through all the details you're just trying to make quick decisions to to get your opportunity and i think that's you know as, as we look at the advances made in bow hunting and the the incredible animals that are being harvested now in tough terrain in high country situations and i think the single most um, important aspect of the advances made in bow hunting are range finders. Look at how many deer, you know, I've been bow hunting since I was a kid and, and the situations where I've missed an animal, it was either just cause I, I, I rushed it and I was too excited or I shot the wrong yardage. And I think range finding, uh, you know, like our range finder now we, sh- we use the Leica Geovids. And when you have an angle compensating range finder in your binoculars, 
that that single advancement in technology, I think, has been more responsible for the animals being taken by bow hunters now than anything. Even the advances in bows, I think, just knowing the range. So if we have the capability to do that as bow hunters to get an accurate read on our range, and we don't, you know, we're it's such a dis- you're putting yourself at, at such a disadvantage. That in fact has changed the entire bow setup I use now. Before, and you'll remember these days, Brian, when it was all about speed, how fast you could shoot. You wanted to lighten your arrow. You wanted to be shooting the most FPS you could. And in the past, my reasoning and a lot of the bow hunters' reasoning was because if you don't know the yardage for sure, you can make up for that with a fast bow. And so I was shooting as fast as I could, but as we've made advancements in range-finding technology, I would say now probably 90% of the shots, maybe not that high, but 80-90% of the shots that bow hunters take on mule deer or elk or just stuff in bigger country, you know the range first. And if that's the case... I don't think you need to feet per second anymore. You want to you want to be able to shoot a heavier arrow and get more you know punch for your shot down downfield. So I've totally changed my bow setup. Where I, I actually don't want to be shooting more than 290, 280 feet per second, but I want a heavier arrow. So I put I added 50 grains to my arrow two years ago because I realized. I don't need to be shooting fast. We have range finders that we use now in almost every situation. I want to shoot a heavier arrow. And this is a new guys have, have adopted that that approach. But for me, it, it was a big step for me to kind of slow things down. But my bow shoots better. My arrows fly better. I get better penetration on everything I'm hitting. And it's because I don't have to worry about speed so much anymore. It's more getting a heavier arrow downfield to punch through what I'm shooting. So that rangefinder discussion is a, to your point, it's a great discussion and such an advantage if we take, if we use it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, I'm the same way. I shoot a heavier arrow. It also quiets down your bow as well, yep. you know, which also helps them jumping the string. Um, you know, I think a, a, a quiet bow, like those those light arrows seem to make quite a bit of noise where the heavier ones seem to, to quiet it down. Uh, also, the, those heavier arrows, they're less apt to wind drift. Um, you yep. know, they, 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 and they, I think they pull better into the target, target at longer ranges, too. That tip weight on there, if you can get that better front of center seems to just pull in and be a little bit more accurate as well so i'm with you on the heavier arrows but a, a good rangefinder is key that um i'm using the the sig sour ones man those ones are amazing and and like you it'll do angle compensating um i also like a powerful laser yours has a powerful laser as well as these sig sours to be able to shoot like the last priority mode or last target priority where you can actually shoot through a little bit of grass and debris it seems like that was the challenge for a while with the the range finders is is they wouldn't shoot through grass or through brush you'd you'd be on a big buck and you'd be trying to shoot them through the grass and you'd keep getting a yardage of six yards six yards and you're just like god would you just read the target you know but these yeah. more powerful lasers, the clear optics like your Leica that you're using, like the Sig Sauer, like um, they they make absolutely all the difference in the world, and it's something that that that's not discussed very much in bow hunting, but is such a huge piece of it. And like you say, I, I think we can attribute a lot of the the big animals and consistent success to to good range finding. Yeah, and that's where, you know, you can get really pricey with some of those too. But luckily, it's not just a monopolized market anymore where before, you know, there was a couple key optic companies that were making really good range-finding binoculars. And now there's there, you can you can go high-end, low-end. You can spend a lot of money or not so much. But 
at least the options are out there for bow hunters now. That would be one suggestion I make is whether they're laser range finding binoculars or just a good range finder, you got to have angle compensation if you're hunting anything with elevation. Um, if you're not, you know, if, as you start to shoot fairly steep angles and even start to extend the distance, it does make a huge difference. Um, you know, if you're not compensating for the angle and the elevation. So, yeah, I think that advancement in technology has really gone to favor the bow hunter, and it's something I'd recommend. Again, it, it also results in fewer animals wounded. If you get an accurate range, uh, accurate read on the range, you know, there, there's nothing but a win-win there where you're you're less likely to, to wound an animal because you've guessed the yardage wrong. So I think that's a win-win. I think you're right. Yeah, and... and um... And there's advantages and disadvantages, like you're using the rangefinder binoculars and I'm using the, the handheld rangefinder. And I think there's advantages and disadvantages to both. I would say the binoculars, a huge advantage is you have the, those crisp, clean optics that you're glassing through all the time that you get to then watch that animal. And so, you know, you can kind of fine tune where you're getting your rangefind at. You can always acquire your target. Low light scenarios, you know exactly what you're looking at. And in the handheld, I would say, like the, the advantage that I could come up with. Uh, it is the handheld, you know, I've got it tethered to my bino harness. So a lot of times I can get a range and I don't have to put it back in the pouch. I can just kind of drop it or set it to my side and, and it's tethered there so it doesn't fall away. And so that's been one of my advantages of the small handheld, but I, I'd say there's advantages and disadvantages to both. But the most, uh, the most important thing is that, you know, I also notice that these good rangefinders nowadays, they read the same range whether you're shooting off a white target, a brown target, a black target, reflective, non-reflective, where some of the older models, um, you you didn't always know you were getting a good range on things. Yeah. Like, it would just, like, I could set a dark target and a white target next to each other, and I could range them, and I could get a yard or two different, and a yard or two makes a huge difference Oh, Especially yeah. when yeah. you're shooting 40, 50, 60 and out there at those longer yardages. But um, I'd say the most important thing is accurate readings, powerful laser, good optics, and angle compensating. And you you get those in the mix, and, and you've got a pretty good rangefinder that you're comfortable with. And I also think you need to practice with that thing. It's one thing to be in your flip-flops in the backyard and hit your deer target and get a good range. It's another thing when you're crawling through the grass or peeking around trees or, like your scenario, shooting through aspens or brush. Like, I, I think you take the chance to practice with your rangefinder, even when you're in close on does, when you're in close on bucks, you're not going to shoot. But just really getting familiar with that thing because having that rangefinder skill is such a huge asset. Yeah, and like so many other things in bow hunting, you know, practice helps you eliminate some of those little details that, you know, usually when a situation in bow hunting goes south, it's something really small that you haven't planned for, and then, you know, right at the end of a situation, that's what goes wrong, and that's, you know, one little detail that maybe maybe guys haven't thought about is practicing using your rangefinder in situations in the out-of-doors, because, again, so many situations for bow hunters go south, not at the beginning of the stock or the scenario, but it's right at the end, and we all have those stories, and that's just one more thing to practice with that hopefully in a kill situation comes to your benefit. But, yeah, one other little detail to check off in your, you know, in your, as you're going through the process of, of a situation in a shot that you can practice ahead of time and familiarize yourself with. Yeah, um, yeah, that's a heartbreaker, and that is usually where it goes wrong. Is right at the end there. I can remember this. Right buck. at the end. Yep. Yeah, 
I remember this buck in Nevada a couple years ago, and he was just this giant three-point. He was with a buck that was all of 190 inches, and the three-point looked bigger than him. You know, he was just a big bladed tines and just a great buck. And uh, I snuck into range of him, and he was bedded with another buck, and they had no idea I was there. And I could just see the top of his head or his horns. Uh, but as soon as he stood up, he was going to give me a broadside, and so I just kept hitting his horns with my rangefinder, and so I got the same reading multiple times, and I thought, okay, I got this buck, you know, dialed to the exact yardage. He wasn't that far, if I remember right, somewhere around 45 or so, but I had this exact yardage on it on his horns, and the minute he stood up, I drew my bow, no idea I was there, and I shot and I shot right over his back, and what had happened was is my rangefinder was reading through the horns, and I was getting a range on the tree oh. behind him, and I thought that was the range, and you know, in hindsight, I just kicked myself for that one, because I thought that buck had no idea I was there, you know, he stood up, I could have ate a sandwich and rangefind him again, he, had, yeah. he wasn't trying to spook out of there, and then shot him, but... You know, I was so sure I had the right range, you know, that I didn't range him when he stood up. I just drew my bow and shot and shot right over him. So that's one of the oh, many yeah, range finding one. yeah, one of the many range finding mistakes I've made. But uh yeah, the more you can kinda eliminate those, uh just just the better off and more success you're gonna have. Yeah, and I, I again I look back at the scenario that I harvested my deer in this year, but it was it was good that I had learned from that experience opening weekend. Um kinda like we said earlier, those experiences are so hard. You know, it's it's common in bow hunting when you're hunting mule deer in the high country to get within hundred and fifty yards. You know, most guys or a lot of guys can do that consistently and then closing the gap from hundred and fifty to a hundred can be so hard and then going from a hundred yards to fifty yards you know, that, that is, again, just a different circumstance. And then when you get something under 50, it just feels like a chip shot. You know, you feel like you're putting your five iron away and picking up your wedge. And so to miss a, a deer under 50, it, it was such a gut-wrenching experience, especially where the deer doesn't know you're there. That buck didn't know I was there. It was a good situation that I rushed a little bit. Um, and, and now looking back, I was so glad the second time I had an opportunity uh, which it usually doesn't happen uh, in the high country to get a, 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 another really good opportunity. Like the the shot I ended up killing my buck on was about 48 yards. It was under 50. Um, but I'm grateful I learned. And I remembered in the moment what I had learned from the previous. And I knew that, you know, as much bow hunting as I've done, you already know these things. Um, but then in the situation sometimes in scramble mode, you, 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 you jump over a dollar to pick up a dime. You know, you jump over something you, you really shouldn't to try to hurry the process up. So I'm, I look back and I'm just grateful that I remembered, make sure you get a good read on this buck in this situation. And it, and it sure helps. Yeah. Um, that's funny what you say. You almost always know better and you've been through every scenario yep. multiple times, but yeah, we almost have to relearn those lessons or you have to learn the hard lesson, like missing seven mag when he's under 50 yards. You got that chance, that opportunity, and, and it broke your heart. But but what it did do is it taught you that lesson and it made that lesson stick. You were not going to make that mistake again, you know. That's the whole reason why you harvested that buck. But that's, so, that's why you're such a, a, a quality, consistent bow hunter, Kip, is just learning from your mistakes, trying to get better. Like I, like I attribute my success to that same thing as I have – I've made every mistake and I've screwed up every scenario under the sun, but I, I just try to learn from it each and every time and try to get a little bit better. And then eventually when I get that next opportunity, like you did 
two weeks later on the same buck, which is incredible, by the way. You know, you made it happen and made a quality shot. That's uh, that's such a great story. Yeah, and we were lucky because, again, we're hunting public land. And so, you know, when I shot and missed and he took off like, you know, a freight train, you just uh, – in high country public terrain on a general you, – you don't know where that deer will end up. And that's why it took us a while to find him again. And even then we didn't know, is he still in the area? And that's where you're, you're – you start to get frustrated and it starts to get tough. If you're trying to hunt a buck, you don't even know who's in the area. It gets tough to hunt one animal. Um, And so it was tough during that week, week and a half, almost two week period where we were trying to find him and we were still trying to harvest and hunt other deer. But in the back of my mind, I wanted to find seven mag. And when you don't know they're still there, it, it puts another element of doubt into the situation that can sometimes play mental games. Then it was tough. So that's why when we relocated him, I was, I was so glad that he was still alive. You know, you never know if somebody else has hunted him and killed him. And so to have Matt say, Hey, I've relocated him. I found him again. I was just elated. And then, you know, then you start thinking, what are the odds I'm actually getting another crack at this deer in this type of terrain? So, Again, I, I know I got lucky. I said I say that I feel like all the time is I, I know how lucky I get when those situations actually come into play and you harvest it and you notch your tag on a deer like that. But I really do feel lucky. I felt lucky that we found him again. I feel lucky that he kind of put himself in a position where I could stalk him, and I feel lucky that I killed him, um, you know, because so many things can go wrong. And in those situations where it's public land it's you're not just it's not just the mountain and the elements that are coming into play it's other hunters and everybody has a right to be in there so to have all those things line up again for me i feel very very fortunate yeah well you created that luck too just with your effort you know you and matt continuing to hit the hills and hunt hard and yeah i you know i missed a buck this year um Gosh, he he walked out at like 30 yards and and then walked dead away from me and I didn't stop him and then 50 and then 60 and then he got out there and he was at, you know, like 69, like uh, the outer reaches of anything. I like to have him 60 and under, but he was broadside and I missed him and wind drift caught my arrow, perfect elevation and just flew right in the the front of his chest and he was just a giant buck and I... um, I learned that lesson hard, but then I looked for that buck for three, four days after that and could never relocate that buck again. That was my one chance at him. You yeah. know? So like you say, to, to find that same buck again and get another chance at him, um, that is just so killer. But you guys earned that opportunity by, by continue hitting the hills, continue glassing. Um, how far away was he from his original spot that you had missed him the first time? Oh, as the crow flies, um, I don't know, a couple thousand yards probably. Um, but, you know, we found these these deer in the areas, even when we've hunted out in Colorado, the high country stuff, when you bump something, they generally, I mean, they don't go miles and miles away. So if we've bumped a deer like we did this year with 7 Mag when I missed him, generally speaking, Brian, you, you kind of feel like within one one drainage you'll find them again. These mule deer tend to... You know, if they get spooked, and a lot of times they don't know when you shoot at them and miss. He didn't know what had happened. Seven Mac didn't know. Um, he knew something happened that he didn't like, so he took off. But generally, we knew within a, a drainage, we'll we'll locate him again. But that's, again, it's easier said than done. It's not like you just jump in your car or jump on your four-wheeler and you you drive over to the next drainage and glass. This is backpacking in. And so even to try to find him in a different drainage is hard because, you know, you're getting up early in the morning before daylight and you're hiking in in the dark and you're all of that comes into play and the time factor comes into play but we generally feel like within a drainage you can relocate them again 
Um, and that's basically what happened with him, but it just took time. It took time and we just had to keep kind of to your point, staying consistent. And that's the message I would share. I share with a lot of guys bow hunting is it's so rare to have everything come together. The most important factor or one of the more important factors is just being consistent, getting up as often as you can and putting yourself in a situation as often as you can. Most times you can't script it. You can't write out how you think it should go down and the situation will present just that way. But the one thing you can control is putting yourself in position as many times as possible. And, you know, the guys that tend to have consistent success year after year are the ones that are, if nothing else, they're just putting themselves out there as often as they can. Yeah, I have this saying that I repeat all the time during hunting season that persistence is deadly. You just keep out there. You keep going. You keep trying. You keep theorizing and making your best plays. And it's amazing what will come together. And and, uh, to your point, like it doesn't always come together like you visualize or like you think it will happen. Sometimes you just get an opportunity, even sometimes where you jump a buck or, you know, you you find them in a spot that you you didn't think you'd find them. uh, um, And you just kind of create that opportunity by being persistent and keeping in the hills. Um, Yeah, and I know that's a huge part of yours and and Matt's success. You guys hunt really hard and you're really persistent. I thought it was a – a great point you made earlier um, that I think is really unique uh, is, is that you guys pack your camps into these few different locations. And I'm like you where I like to scout a bunch of different locations. Even if I find a good buck, I don't hike in there every weekend and look at them. Like I may go back and check on them, but for the most part, then I'm going to a new spot, a new location, and I want to have – backup plans and a few different areas that I can jump around to on these deer. But I think it's so interesting that you guys pack your water, your food, even your pad and your sleeping bag into these different locations. So then you don't have to use that much effort to get in there during hunting season. You can kind of jump around. Kip, I think that's a real effective way to do it. And I haven't implemented that in any of my hunting, but um, I'm really interested in it. It sounds like a, a great strategy, especially for these high country mule deer. Yeah, and you, again, you think about the high country mule deer hunts, and even if, you know, it, it, I've had people, you know, not question, but they're like, well, even just for an overnighter, you know, they'll say, what if you just go in and hunt for an overnighter? And my point is, well, that's even more the point, that if you're just going in for a quick overnighter, you know, you, if, it, it just gets so heavy when you're hauling in a tent, a sleeping bag, a pad, a pillow, a stove, you know, then I, it, it almost drives the point home even more that you're hauling in 60 pounds worth of gear to hunt one night. So, you know, that's why and we've, we've done this for a little while now, but the more places we like to get into, even when we were out hunting in Colorado, um, you know, we would try to go out in the summer. But the, the problem is, Brian, it gets more expensive because you have to, you know, I've got like four tents. I've got four or five lightweight sleeping bags, four or five. I've got like four or five of everything now. But it sure makes it easier when you're bouncing and jumping just to know, okay, in this drainage, if I end up over there, I've got stuff over there. In this drainage, if I end up over there, I've got everything I need to spend the night. And, you know, sometimes you go up for just like an evening hunt and you get into an animal that maybe you couldn't make a move on that night. But then if you have to haul yourself clear off the mountain and then you got to get up in the morning and haul yourself all the way back in, the reality is that just gets draining and hard. It's been so much easier for me, um, you know, rather than waking up at 2 a.m. and hiking in in the dark and hunting for the day and then coming back out, it's actually easier for me um, physically if I don't have to wake up at 
2 a.m. If I, it's easier for me to go in and just spend the night. And that, that kind of came into play a few years ago when I realized it's easier just to go in the night before and to hunt a few hours in the evening, spend the night up there, hunt in the morning, and then if I got to come off. And this really comes into play, Brian, when you, when you have these little windows you're hunting where you don't have you know, five days here and five days there, but you're, you, you're trying to juggle work and family and everything we talked about before. These little day and a half or evening morning hunts really do come into play. And I think you're so much more effective when you can go in, hunt the evening, you find some deer and whether you can make a move on them or not, if you can stay the night and get back on them first thing in the morning, that's where these little, you know, these little splinter, we, I call them splinter camps come into play where I know over on this ridge, I've got a tent, sleeping bag, pad, pillow, enough food for a few days and water then man, you can jump and fly around and you go from a 50 to 60 pound pack to a 15, maybe 20 pound pack. But it, it really, at least for me, and you know, I'm in my mid forties now, but going from a 50, 60 pound pack where you're trying to hunt with that. to you're hunting with a 15 to at the most 20 pound pack. It makes a huge difference and it gives you the ability to be nimble. So that this, the last few summers that I've spent a lot of time going in way, way early into different areas that we know we may end up hunting and I filter water. I'll, I'll go in with the water filter and, and I know that uh, I've posted about this on Instagram, but I'll, I'll, every time I go in scouting, every time I take in two or three big empty jugs and a filter. And if I get into an area, I think, I think I might end up hunting here. If you're in there early in the summer, usually there's good runoff uh, or there's snow and I filter and stash water and that water weight is really what kills you on a backcountry bow hunt. If you're, you know, if you go to Colorado, a lot of those places have water, but in areas out here, even areas in Nevada, even areas in um, southern Idaho where you don't have water in some of these situations, if you can get in early, you don't even have to haul the water in. If you can just get in and filter it when there's runoff and stash it, uh, you're just giving yourself an opportunity later on during the hunting season not to kill yourself hauling in gear and water it's there waiting for you. And so that has really influenced uh, not only the way we scout, but the way you prepare, but it also gives you this mental advantage when you're hunting that if you see a deer and you want to go after him, you know, I got to camp a half mile from there. I got to camp one drainage over. I don't have to come out at night and get home at one in the morning. I can just stay. It really has become an effective way for us, although it may be a little more expensive uh, to buy two and three versions of the same gear uh, it, it, the problem though, Brian, is after I killed my buck, I spent the next, after we got back from Wyoming, I had to take three trips in and pull some of this gear out. And that can be, we, in fact, we still have a couple camps we got to go pull. And now that the snow started to hit out here in Utah, it's going to be, it might be kind of tough, but we, we and uh, one other quick thing, we just, we get heavy doobie garbage bags. Guys I've talked to about this have wondered, well, what do you store them in? I'll triple layer heavy duty garbage bags and I've never had a problem. You know, we've left stuff, I've left stuff, you know, stashed for a year or two and come back. And if you triple layer it with a heavy-duty garbage bag and stash it somewhere that makes sense, uh, we've never had a problem with it, so... Man, that is so intelligent. I love that approach, Kip. Yeah, and and you're just you're putting in work prior to season and after season, and but during season, gosh, it's got to make you so effective. I I can't imagine being able to travel around. That was one of the big challenges in Nevada this year was the water. You couldn't get any water up on top, but on top is where you wanted to be to hunt the bucks, and that's yeah. that's the case a lot of times when hunting high country mule deer. Or, or even elk, for that matter, you know, in some locations uh, where you want to be up high. But I really like that, Kip. Now, 
Um, do you have so the triple layer contractor garbage bags? Do you have any problem with keeping water in plastic jugs and getting like that wa- that plastic taste to it or anything? No, and and sometimes you can. So usually what we'll do when we've had water stashed for a while, like even a couple of years, we usually run a second filter on it again. So if we filter the water from a snowpack or a stream and we fill up plastic jugs. And then you go in a year later and you're going to use that water. We'll filter it again just to be safe from a safety perspective because um, sometimes you get that residue that you'll stash water for a year and you'll go back and there's floaties in it. So we'll always, I always carry a filter with me because they're light and they're worth it. But then we also just always carry flavor pouches, just crystal, whatever. There's all kinds of flavor pouches um, that, you know, if there is any type of residual taste, you can you flavor pouch it up and you don't even notice it. But we're very careful um, on making sure that we're filtering, almost excessively filtering the stuff. Because I, you know, I anybody that's had bad experience with a bacteria, you just don't want to do that to yourself. <laughs> Especially in the back country, there are horror stories. So that's what we do. Is even if we filtered something, we almost always run a secondary filter process on it again to make sure we feel safe. And then if you need to flavor it up a little to get some of the the yucky taste out of it it's a simple way to do it man um what a great approach yeah i really like that it's got to make you so effective like you say being able to jump around with a light pack and then be able to go to different locations and really hunting high country mule deer i don't think it's the most effective way to be in one location for 10 days you know i i think it is jumping around and really when you when you find a buck or you know I, i don't usually sit on a buck for five days usually within the first you know, two or three days, I'm making a play on that buck. Usually the first day or two, you know, I, I'll find that buck in a bad spot and make a play on him. But then after that, I don't know that you want to keep keep in that area. A lot of times you want to bounce to another area, but when you got to pack a 50-pound pack and then come all the way out and go back in somewhere, yeah. it's, it seems daunting. But if you had your camps well, in you different can, yeah. places and water in different places, like then all of a sudden you're just out with a 15-pound pack and right back into a new location in a fresh spot with all the water and food and sleeping bag and tent that you need. I, I just think that's such a great approach, and it's so unique, Kip. I haven't, I haven't really, you know, I've heard of stashing gear before, but I haven't really heard of guys that are that are using it the way you and Matt are. That's that's a, a really cool approach. Well, and there's a couple other things too that you can use these splinter camps. You know, it, it doesn't always happen that you have your splinter camp set up perfectly, you know, but you can use them to splinter camp off, off of again, where, you know, if if, if you're, you, you realize you need to bounce over to this other drainage and you have a splinter camp over there, you can, and Matt and I have done this multiple times, where you get to your splinter camp, you load up what you need for, you throw in your tent and your sleeping bag and just a little bit of water and food and you jump from there. So it's not necessarily that you have to have each splinter camp perfectly centrally located in the place you want to hunt, but it gives you the opportunity to, you know, to jump over and grab what you need to out of them and then jump again and jump again. So we've we've actually probably done that as much as we've actually camped right there in these splinter camps as we've just gone over almost got what we need to out of the cache we have and then jump again and jump again. Um, and the other thing is, too, I have become so efficient in the way I think about hunting, and I'm not complimenting myself, it's a bad thing actually, that you start to think about how you can be most efficient during a hunt where 
Um, like even in the summer when I'm looking at taking in gear for splinter camps, the, in the back of your mind, you're like, well, what if I never use this? I'm going to haul in a, a camp here, and then I'm going to haul in a camp there, and I'm going to haul in a camp here, and i got four camps around, and it takes time and effort and energy and money to do that. And then you're asking yourself, well, what if I never use this? Has it, has it been wasted? That's always in the back of your mind, but it's never wasted. I, I look at it now as, look, I'm taking gear up. If I need it, great. It gives me a mental and physical advantage. If I don't ever need it, I'm getting my butt in shape by hiking this stuff in now. And by the time the hunt rolls around in late August, it's funny. You get your hiking legs under you. The first time you go out hiking high elevation packed with 40 or 50 pounds in June, it's kicking your butt. And by the time August rolls around, I was going up and down the mountain. We get our hiking legs, and you you get into a zone and a groove. And hauling in these splinter camps does nothing but prepare you for that. So you're kind of killing multiple birds with one stone. You're hiking in. You're scouting you're hauling gear in, you're learning the area, you're stashing gear and food and water. So it's this whole process of preparation where when you go into the hunt, it hasn't been wasted time. You've gotten in shape, you've gotten out and enjoyed the mountains. And if at the end of the hunt you haven't used certain spots and you gotta go out and pull gear, that's okay too. You know, you're like like I did over the last few weeks and I was pulling all this gear off in certain spots. It just gave me a reason to to get out and go and there's certain stuff you can leave over the winter and other stuff you can't but it's not wasted time. That whole uh, mental uh, aspect of is this efficient? I realize it doesn't have to be. You know, if it's an excuse to get out and hike and uh, and it keeps your legs going and in shape, then it, it doesn't have to be quote efficient to be to be time well spent. Oh, I love that approach and mindset that you have with it. And you're right, boy, you sure sure are getting your mountain legs underneath you. By the time season hits, you're just ready to rock and roll. Um, yeah, I really like that approach. That's so cool, Kip. And so you guys went, you harvested seven mag, and then you talked about that Wyoming hunt a little bit. Uh, again, you teamed up with Matt. Sounds like you guys had had an elk tag there in Wyoming. You each had an elk tag, and uh, looked like you guys had an incredible hunt there. Yeah, it was awesome. We had a friend of ours, J.C. Chamberlain, from in Wisconsin, I believe. J.C. came out. It was kind of his first uh, archery elk hunt. So it was the three of us, and it, I mean, it was just incredible. We hit it just right. Um, the elk were screaming. I killed my bull first morning, first setup, first call, which never happens. Um, Matt and I were together that morning. J.C. hadn't showed up. And we hiked up on this ridge line, and just as it was breaking daylight, Matt and, and Matt's kind of the elk whisperer in the group he's got so much more experience than i do elk i've learned so much from matt but i don't want to imply at all that that there's a skill level that's even close matt matt is unbelievable with bugling and cow calling and so i i kind of and he's been you know this situation that i killed you know matt wanted to put me in first kill position it was very very clear going into the hunt that he He's harvested, I think, 10 bulls now with his bow. All of them, I think 9 of the 10 or 10 of the 10 have been 6 points or better. So, But when we went in, he wanted me to kill. I've only killed one bull with my bow. So we went in first morning, first daylight, first everything. He cow calls him as bull screams back at us. It was probably only 200 yards away. So I you know, hurried down and got set up in front of Matt, and he backed up, and within a couple minutes, this bull had come right in. But the bull wouldn't commit. He'd come into – he was about 60 yards when he held up. He'd left his cows to come check on us. And every bull, Brian, every single bull we called in that week, which was probably, I don't even know, 20 different bulls, they all came in and circled downwind, every single one of them. They would get close and circle. So this bull started to circle – and I was ranging him, and I couldn't actually tell quite what he was. I didn't feel this sense of urgency to kill the first bull we called in. I wanted to make sure what he was. And when he came in head on, 
he stopped at 60 through the timber and I couldn't quite tell, but then when he turned sideways and was skirting us to get our wind, you know, I could tell he had a seventh on the back and he looked solid. He looked, you know, I, I thought at the time he was about a 330 bull. So he started to circle and then he actually turned and was going back to his cows and he stopped and I had arranged him at 62 yards. And when he stopped, he had his head behind a pine and I had a perfect shot into his vital. So I pulled back. I felt calm. I didn't feel this, again, I didn't feel this urgency to have to kill him. So I put my 60 pin on him. I checked everything. I felt calm. I actually pulled my head off and make sure there was nothing in the way, no branches I hadn't accounted for. Put my 60 pin on, held just a little high behind his shoulder to compensate for the other two yards and let her go. And everything felt good, but it didn't, to me, for some reason, I didn't hear the hit. I didn't hear, we call it that watermelon hit when you double lung them and you don't catch a rib and you just blow through them. And I didn't hear it. And the bull kind of took a couple steps and, and then just kind of walked off and disappeared. And I didn't know what to think. You know, here it is the first 20 minutes of the hunt. And I just, I didn't know if I'd hit him. I, I know I felt good. I called Matt over. And I said, well, I just shot at him. He's a good bull. And we go walking up there and here's my arrow stuck in a tree. And initially, when you see your arrow stuck in a tree, you know, what are you thinking? You know, you think you missed for sure. So I, I saw the arrow from a little ways off. and thought, ah, I, I thought I'd missed, but when we got up to the arrow, it was covered with, you know, there's blood up there on the broadhead. And, and we look and 50 yards away is my bully and they're dead. I mean, he'd only gone 50 yards. I double lunged him. But that's how the hunt started. <laughs> it started off with a bang. And then uh, JC showed up and the next day. Um, I actually called JC's bull in to 45 yards and he smoked it. And then Matt was being really picky all week because Matt's killed like a 360 bull and he's killed a 360 and it's 350 in Utah. He's killed some really good bulls. So he was trying to really focus on a couple of these big herd bulls that we had seen from a distance. And a couple of times he came so close. Uh, and then the last night we, we had to get home. I said earlier, cause Matt's house was being threatened by a fire. So we got a bull going that we had called T-Rex all week because he had this real distinct bugle. We just hadn't seen or put eyes on T-Rex, but we had heard him all week. And that last day, we got that bull screaming and uh, ended up calling it in, and Matt shot it. At, I mean, I actually filmed it on my on my phone. He shot it at, like, 15 yards and put a, put a heart shot on it, and the bull ran out and died within, you know, I think it was like 41 yards. The bull tipped over dead. So it was that kind of a week. It was just nonstop the whole time. Man, how cool! Yeah, that's some elk action. That that elk hunting when you're into them like that, that is so thrilling, isn't it? It's as good as it gets. Oh, it's unreal, and you know, it's something that it's it's tough to find a quality elk hunt like that. Um, it's just tough to find them, and so to to hit it just right. We had good weather the entire time, and the bulls were just you know, and it, it, I don't want to give the impression that it was just bulls screaming everywhere every but you know every day one of us could have killed a bull i mean every day and we split up and matt was uh, uh, in his area or off on his own a few times and then me and jc were together and then i would go help matt but it was just that constant again we'd leave camp and be hunting all day we'd hunt all day we'd hunt obviously the action was better in the morning and then things would quiet down but and early in the afternoon it would start up again but that was one thing we just hunted all day we'd leave camp in the morning hunt all day be moving all day get back late at night and hit it again um but it was yeah it was an incredible week and to go in with three tags and to come out with three bulls down was awesome 
Man, it doesn't get any better. Yeah, good for you guys. Um, so fun to share a hunt like that with buddies too. Like you say, jumping around and and helping Matt and helping JC and uh, and then to kill three bulls and get them all packed out and uh, good meat throughout the winter. Good for you guys. And that was a heck of a bull you killed, boy. That was a beautiful. Was six by seven. Yeah, he was a six by, and he surprised me. You know, I was I just wasn't quite sure. Uh, when I was seeing him, I knew he was a good bull, but he ended up being a 340 bull. You know, we, he, he is that good of a bull, and I was absolutely, you know, I'm thrilled with him. But it's kind of funny, again, where he ended up being a little bit, I, I actually, when I shot him, I didn't know that he was a, a 340-type bull. I just thought he's a 6x7. The bull I killed a couple of years ago was a 7x7, seven seven, but he ended up being a 340 bull. So I was, you know, just ecstatic with him. And But it's funny, Brian, you kill bulls like that, and then you see these, we saw two bulls. During the course of the week, that one was probably 360, and then one was just a slob, probably 370 plus. And it's just the next class. It's unbelievable just to be in tight on 320, 330, 340 bolts, and then you see that next 360, 370 plus. And it's just, it, you know, it's like going from a 180 buck to a 200 inch buck. It's just that next level up. And just to see a couple bowls of that class was incredible. All right. To have the opportunity at those, I. I just went through that where, uh, yeah, I've been hunting elk hard here in Montana, and same thing. I've had a lot of buddies stay with me and and, and help buddies trying to get their bowl, and um, but I just had a, this great season. I hunted uh, new units this year. I kind of got out of my my old unit where I'd killed you know six six points in the last six years, but I, I'm just wow. looking for different opportunity. Is there kind of higher pressured elk, and I'm not seeing as many big ones as I've seen years prior. So and, and also just exploration i love to explore and go to new places so i've been hunting elk really hard and uh we've been seeing some good bulls and on some good bulls and um you know and then it gets into this late season they're not calling as much and we've had snow and cold here in montana like this past week and it was 10 degrees the 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 deep snow came in but the bulls are just all over the place and there's there's nobody hunting i have all the mountains to myself and you know i've been i've been looking over a lot of bulls and like you say, I, I've been seeing them, and it's like, yeah, you're looking hard for a six-point, a nice mature bull, and you go, okay, they, yeah, that one's a six-point, or, man, that's a good bull. I'll chase him all day long, you know, a nice 325 bull. And then I saw one on Sunday that just blew my mind. You know, you look at them for five seconds through the spotting scope and just go, oh, my word, yeah, that yeah. thing is another level. Like, I, I didn't put yep. an exact score on them because I looked for about five seconds and thought, I got to go. I got to get up there. You know, I got to get to this bull. <laughs> but I could just – he was one of those next-level bulls like you're talking about, that 360, 370. And so to be able to chase that for the last couple days of the season was really cool. I actually – I had a, a miss um, – Gosh dang it, I had a, a, a bow malfunction that I haven't had this for years, and I haven't... Um, oh, you're kidding. No, you're I haven't kidding. talked what about happened? it on the podcast or anything yet, but um, so I'm sneaking on that great big bowl, and I'm getting the wind right. I got this north wind coming through the timber, and there's snow, like a foot of snow, and so I'm getting around this bowl and getting the wind right, and I look up, and there's this giant six-point right in front of me feeding on the edge of this timber, and you know, he's like a like a really nice 320 325 really nice tying six point and i'm this is my last day of bow season and it's like man he'll work i'd be thrilled to kill this bull you know i know i'm after this giant but you know this thing has just presented such a great opportunity and i'd just be thrilled to death with him so i start putting a play on him and i start stalking and he's just feeding no idea i'm there and uh 
I get into range and and I'm I'm into range for probably 10 minutes as he's just kind of feeding facing away from me and won't give me a good angle or there's limbs in the way so I just keep closing in and now I I'm to chip shot range this bull has no idea I'm there and I got this perfect wind on this bull I mean it's a dead bull it's about 10 mm. 10 degrees with a 20 mile an hour north wind so it's just absolutely freezing out um so I I finally, this bull turns broadside, and I draw back and settle my pin, and I go through my checklist and execute my shot, and my arrow came out of there so wild, not even close to that bull, shooting left and right. I thought, what in the heck? Did I have a bunch of ice and snow on my bow or what? And I kind of took chases. The bull didn't know what had happened, and I never got another shot at him. And then I looked down, and my rest had not fall, fallen away. Um, oh, you're kidding. No, it had, uh, and it wasn't froze up because I checked that. That's on my checklist of things. And I had actually shot my bow the day before because it was cold and you always want to make sure your gear's on. And so I shot it the day before and everything fell away great. But the problem was is my bow had got cold and then I put it in my truck. It warmed up. I got back to my house, shot some arrows. Oh, it yeah. shot fine. And so I ended up calling my buddy on the rest that uh, he's one of the head engineers at this company. And I'm all, man, what's, what's going on? Like I could see another six point and i could not get my rest to fall away and he said that grease had got cold and stiffened up in that rest oh, and that no. there was nothing i could do you know so i i could actually see that great big bull then after i missed that bull and got back to the opening i could see that great big bull and he was laid down in the perfect spot and i could not make my rest and you work couldn't do anything. no i couldn't do anything <laughs> i had to walk away from him i had to go back oh, down to my terrible. truck you know, drive home, grab my backup bow, get back out there. By that time, that bull had moved. I still had a great hunt that night, you know, but I, I never did catch up with that big bull. But, man, oh, man, yeah, uh, bow malfunction with my rest. Um, you, you know, know. I, I've had that one, I had that one time with a release. and, it, and it, But it's funny, Brent, I had a release malfunction at a big deer. And it, it it's so interesting what I learned from I actually ended up harvesting the same deer about a month later, but in the mo and it was a, it's a big deer. It's one of my biggest mule deer. It's, it's a 190 buck. But after when I missed him, and it was because the set through in my release had come loose. This was 20 years ago. But I, it's amazing what I learned from that, where I realized you can't pay too close attention to any detail. Because um, I, I felt like if I would have, if I would have noticed this malfunction earlier, I could have prevented it. And, and you know, there's two ways to look at it. You know, you could have told yourself with your rest that, you know, it, it wasn't your fault. You ha It was totally out of your control. And in your situation, it was. But for me, when my release malfunctioned, I could have taken that approach. And I kind of did for a while. But then I realized I should have had a second release in my backpack. I should have. And it changed the way I, I go into bow hunting now, where you try to eliminate every possible thing that could go wrong. And it's funny how those little things may never come into play, but they've come into play for me where I've had stuff go wrong. And because I've thought about the potential for something like that happening and I've prepared for it and I was ready for it. Um, but it, but it's still in your situation, totally, totally unfortunate. Well, and I, I take full responsibility. I approach bow hunting like you do where anything that's attached to my bow, you know, is, is my responsibility. And, and furthermore, I'm giving bow advice to guys. I, I'm, I'm working on bows constantly. Yep. Like I should know better. And furthermore, I know this engineer and it's not his job to call me and tell me they're having problems with the grease. You know, it's, it's my job, you know, like I'm fortunate I get to test these release, these rests and these, these different components to the bow. And, and I should, I, you know, 
I am responsible for everything that's on my bow, and I need to learn from it and become better, you know, test things yeah. better, make sure that, I'm... That's something that you can't foresee coming, but maybe you could have. Maybe you could have mentally thought about, oh, what if this gets cold? Is there anything in the in the rest that could malfunction? Does weather? And you could have asked him ahead of time, and that yeah. that is almost how you have to look at it. Otherwise, every time something goes wrong... Unfortunately, you'll find a reason why it wasn't your fault, and it was the bow or the broadhead or the release or the arrow, and that that's just too easy to do in bow hunting. There's anytime a situation goes south, there can there's always something to blame. Otherwise, you know the other approach is it sounds like you're taking it, and I think guys try to is what can I do ahead of time to prepare for every scenario, and I'm responsible for it and. You know, that, that's what it did for me when I, when I had that release malfunction is I was so, dis- I, it was just, it was the biggest dare I'd ever had a chance at and I missed because of my release and I was so distraught and just sick. And then I realized, well, I either, own, I, I, you know, I should have had a second release with me. I should have, I tested my release the day before I should have tested it that day and I would have known. So it just changed the way, it changed my mentality about bow hunting where, to your point, Brian, it, everything in bow hunting is on me, everything, and, and every situation that goes south, sometimes you can't control everything, and it just doesn't happen, but if there's something I could have controlled ahead of time and I didn't, I need to learn that. I need to, to recognize it. Man, that's it. Yep. And and same thing. I could have tested that release in the morning and flipped it up and flipped it down and I would have known right away what the problem was. Yep. And it just it wasn't on my checklist. What is on my checklist is to check my rest to make sure it's not frozen, but anything with moving parts can malfunction. But I think the key is to to test it and over test it and like this rest, I've shot ten thousand arrows through this rest and ten thousand shots it's done what it's supposed to. This is the ten thousand and first shot, you know, and this is the one shot that went wrong. So there was never any signs of of anything going wrong, but there too I hadn't been hunting in ten degree temperatures with it. Now, maybe last year it got cold, but I, I just I hadn't tested it in those conditions, but yeah, yep. it, it just reaffirms everything that you're saying. I am responsible for every piece and part of my bow, and it's on there for a reason. It's on there for a reason because I trust it. And so, you know, you you just have to build that trust through testing it in all variables, all conditions. I'm completely 100% responsible. And, you know, I kind of took away from it, too. It's like this the last day of bow season i would have loved to kill that bull it it would have been a a great end to a great story and a great season but in that same same breath like not to take anything away from that experience i mean deep snow north wind snowing like crazy here's this bull feeding in front of me you know i got 20 minutes with him of stalking him in the snow slowly putting my foot down in the you know in the crunchy snow and slipping my foot getting really close and watching him feed in front of me and my bow in front of me like those are those moments I live for. So it doesn't take anything away from that spiritual experience I have with that bull elk up there. Would I love to kill him? You bet. Yep. But I'm I'm gonna learn from it. I'm gonna be a better bow hunter because of it. Like like it just it is what it is. You know, it's um uh, things go right a lot of the times, and then um, if it can go wrong, it will. And that was one of those times. And uh, all I can do is learn from it and get better and and uh, come back next year. And when I get those cold temps, I guarantee I'll have a rest that's working correctly. Yeah, you know, it's funny, I kind of to close out on that, but when that happened with my release on this big deer, I had never in my life had a release malfunction, ever. I'd never had a release malfunction. 
In fact, I shot fingers forever, Brian. For, I shot fingers with my recurve from the time I was five till the time I was like, I don't know, 23, 24. I didn't want to switch to a release because inherently in my mind, I, I was skeptical that it was out of my control, that if I was ever out hunting and I had a problem with my release, it would, it would kill the situation. So it took me forever to even go to a release. And then I shot a release. Obviously, I've shot it since, but I'd never had a single issue ever until the biggest buck of my life to get a shot at. And the release, again, I shot a release 10,000 times in that, in that one scenario. I had, but I learned so much from that about, you know, had everything gone perfect and I killed that buck. Great, but I learned more almost from having that issue with my equipment to realizing, hey, I need to get ahead of it. I need to plan for this stuff. And and sometimes, to come to your point, Brian, something happened and you've learned from it now. But I, I've learned so much more from the things that have gone wrong, I think, than when things go right. That you know, so it happens in bow hunting. But I laugh because I had never had a release issue ever until until that one in that moment. And and uh, boy, that I learned from it. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Uh, why does it always happen on those critters? I had one time, uh, I was getting ready to shoot a buck and I had snuck in on him on his bed and he got up and he fed out of the trees and I go to range find him and my range finder isn't working and I'm in range and my battery had gone dead on my range finder yeah. on that one time I was trying to range find that deer. Now I did have another battery with me and I tell you, I was scrambling with shaky hands <laughs> trying to get that battery switched out. But again, uh, you learn more from your failures than you do from your successes and learning that lesson now every year before the hunt starts i've got a fresh battery in there and and to your point on on releases i think a lot of guys or what i've had happen before uh on releases and i made this point on the podcast is make sure before season you go through your your release and, and make sure to clean any dust and debris and oil that thing i know even a sticky release makes such a difference with your accuracy and i think a lot of times me included i can't tell all of a sudden my groups are just getting bigger and it's because my my release isn't as crisp it, it's like almost sticking or harder to pull and the shots don't break as clean and so I go through my my release every year before season, but you're right. We build yeah. this like this mental checklist of all our gear and, and all our equipment and everything that's on it, and going through it. Like I I know you probably check your broadheads as you spin them all. You make sure the blades open with yep. the correct tension every time. Like we have such a checklist of gear that we have to go through of a hundred different moving parts. But it, it's so important to to learn from those failures, to go through your gear, to trust every piece of gear that you're using, and and um, it, it's just such a major uh, component of, of being a successful bow hunter, and something that just happened to me a couple of days ago. But I'm going to learn from it and get better. Yeah, I mean, my experience was in in 2001, and here it is, you know, 17 years later, and I'm talking about it with you on a podcast because it had that big of an impact on me. Uh, almost 20 years ago that, uh, you know, and it's funny too, the more gear we get, you know, as, as technology advances and the more gear you get, it's funny, you get more gear. So it gives you the opportunity not to fail more. You know, that's why we're shooting drop away rest. That's why we're using uh, range finders. That's well, that's why we're using expandable broadheads. And as gear improves, it also enhances your necessity to be aware of these moving parts you know if you want to simplify everything go to a recurve or a longbow and you don't have to worry about this stuff but the more gear we put in our backpack and is, is quote unquote is supposed to enhance and improve our ability to harvest an animal 
it's also one more thing you have to make sure is working properly. So it's kind of, again, this catch-22 where the gear is getting better, everything is getting more sophisticated, but there's also this, you know, asterisk along with it that, well, you need to make sure your rangefinder has batteries. You need to make sure in cold weather your air arrest is going to drop. You need to make sure your release is not caught with debris and dust, and you need to make – all of that, it's kind of funny how it's simplifying the process, but it's complicating the process as well. <laughs> That's a good way to put it, Kit. Well, um, man, I just always really enjoy talking bow hunting with you. You're so insightful. Um, it, it's just so fun to compare notes with you, and I learn something every time. And um, so, so I really enjoy having you on the podcast, Kip. And and today, um, our podcast, we've got some sponsors on the podcast. So um, today, the the podcast is brought to us by Technu. Um, so Technu, um, they were nice enough. They donated a cooler bag and a, a beanie, and then they've got this first aid gel, and then the Technu original. Uh, as long uh, with that, we'll send you an Eastman's care package with some shirts and some hats. So hang on after the podcast, and I'll grab your address and send that off to you. Awesome. But man, I awesome. just thanks, Brian. Enjoyed it. Yep. Um, thank you, Kip. We'll talk to you soon. All right, guys, that's a wrap. Again, just really fun conversation with Kip. Thanks to him for being back on the podcast. And, um, you know, I know these guys are, um, you know, when I ask them to be on the podcast, it, it's so fun to have these these quality guests and these quality conversations. But, you know, I realize that they're giving up time with their family or, or hunting time. And so I just really appreciate them being on. And um, I really appreciate you guys for, for reaching out and letting my guests know that you enjoyed their content. It just brings such weight to the podcast that they – they know that guys are listening in and, and uh, learning from, from the information that they're sharing here on the podcast. So, yeah, just absolutely love it. Um, just super fortunate to, to have this thing rolling and, and good buddies and good friends that are willing to be on and, and um, you know, give away their secrets. Um, you know, to, to get insight into public land hunting from these guys that are extremely successful, you know, it takes years to gather this information and, and years of hard knocks too. It, it isn't easy. You fail a lot. Um, you know, there's a lot of empty trips like, um, you know, you, you see on a, you know, somebody's Instagram uh, account, you see like these successful hunts where they harvested a good deer, uh, a good bull, but you know, the fact is it takes years to learn these spots and these locations and you have, you have a lot of empty trips, some trips where you'll go a week and you don't even turn up a good buck. And so it, it just takes a, a lot of dedication, takes a lot of time and, and it takes passion. And for these guys to be on and share that with us, um, it, it's just absolutely awesome. I can't thank them enough and can't thank you guys enough. Um, so sponsor for today's show is uh, tech new. And uh, that was cool. Technu gave us some products to give away on the podcast, give to Kip, along with uh, uh, Eastman's, some Eastman's gear as well. So um, that's a really neat deal. So thanks to Technu. Again, they've got their Technu Original for Poison Oak, Poison Ivy, and then their First Aid Gel, good for blisters, cuts and scrapes, and things of that nature. Um, so make sure to check them out. Yeah, over there at Eastman's, um, we had Brandon's podcast last week, his giant bull that he killed, and then I saw that his son came through and killed a really nice buck as well uh, for his first muley buck. Um, I believe they, they filmed it. Um, I'm not sure if it'll be Eastman's Hunting TV or Beyond the Grid, but um, really cool that they were able to capture that, and, and I know Brandon will have those memories for a lifetime, and so will his son Hunter, so um 
fun to see that. I know Guy and Ike have been scoring. They both killed Bucks and, and Antelope. And um, it's just been a, a heck of a good season and a heck of a good season for me. I just had so many great adventures and encounters and, and just um, God, living life to the fullest. It's just what I absolutely love to do. And, and it's not over yet. I know I still got some, some good rut hunts and I may be a weekend warrior, but um, I'm going to make the most of it and go hard and put on some miles and I'm sure I'll find some bucks and get some stocks and, and uh, I just can't wait and hopefully try to put together another coos trip or, or maybe a, a muley trip um, down in Arizona. So um, that'll be really fun. I think I'll have some time to do that late and, and uh, really enjoy it and soak in some sunshine when it's cold up here in Montana. So I still got some good hunts left, some more good hunts coming with family. That one with my youngest daughter was just amazing. Um, we got that hunt coming up with my oldest daughter, so we're going to try to get her out and find her a nice buck. And um, I've got my cousin coming out. He's got a mule deer tag this year for Montana. He killed a nice buck last year, so going to help him out and help my dad out and, and uh, uncles and things of that nature. But um, yeah, just going to enjoy it and um, get my work done, take care of my responsibilities, and then try to squeeze in some hunting here in, in um, the weekends and, and um yeah, soak in some sunshine and soak in the, the last little bit of fall before winter sets in, but um, it's going to be fun. It's just been an amazing season. I can't, a lot of the fun f- for me comes in planning these hunts, so I I can't wait, you know, as we start winding down on season, just thinking of, of what could come next year, what could come, you know, years in the future, you know, talking about, I'd love to um, go to Australia and hunt the, hunt the, um, water buffalo god i can't even i don't even know what i'm hunting out there but um god i'd love to hunt like those water buffalo or fallow deer i'd love to go experience that um my hawaii buddies they went to new zealand that one year and hunted tar up on that public land up there just the these peaks and helicoptered in i'd love to go with those guys on on that hunt if they put that together again um, I love going to Hawaii. That is so fun on those axis deer. I, I just fell in love with that. And there's some good public land opportunities there too. Um, you know, where I, I wouldn't mind going over and spending some more time and hunting some of that public land. The mouflon was really fun hunting out there, but yeah, it's just, uh, amazing possibilities for the, the blue collar bow hunter. And so, um, yeah, just time to get to work and save my pennies and start planning on these these next adventures. Of course, I always love hunting mule deer. Um, fell a little short on my elk hunt. You guys probably heard that story in there. God dang, it just kills me. But um, you know that that's hunting, and I still have that experience, and and I'm I'm gonna get better because of it. You know, so. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm psyched to hunt elk. I need to start hunting elk, or I need to. Um, I need to dedicate some more time to hunting elk. I burn so much of my time hunting high country muleys that that I I need to spend more time focused on elk and big bulls and because um, I I really enjoy hunting them. They're so much fun. So um, you know, just a few things I'm thinking about. But you know, I'll, I'll record it in a therapy session or or a, another podcast is what I it, it kind of is like my therapy session. Um, just talk about goals and ambitions and, and, uh, where I can improve, you know, shortcomings and then, and then also what I did right too. It's important to, to be proud of yourself and be happy for your accomplishments and, and really recognize the things you did right too. So, um, yeah, I'm just trying to process this whole season. It's been so much fun. It's been so fun to share in your guys' success and, um, yeah, we just got to keep this thing rolling for Eastman's Elevated. So I sure appreciate all the support. I better wrap this up, get this out to you guys for this week and um, keep working away. So I'll check in with you guys next week.